Good morning. The other day, uh, my wife came here to uh, exercise, and she saw the signs on the doors that said, uh, we're no longer shaking until April. She came home and said, those signs are awful. That is very unfriendly. Whose idea was that? <laughs> that would be my idea. Uh, we've had seven or eight of my coworkers sick, and when they get sick, they're out for a whole week. And so I thought, you know, influenza is going all around. And so if you don't like the signs, I will shake your hand, I promise. <laughs> it's not an attempt to be unfriendly. It's just to keep us all healthy. Let's go ahead and ask God to, uh, to guide our time. By the way, I should add, uh, when I gave it to Dan McDonald, he added to their signs that no holy kisses are allowed in Weston. So he's more radical than me. Let's go ahead and pray. Father God, we ask that you would guide our time as we look at Luke 15. We pray, Lord, that uh, this week and the next two, as we're in this chapter, you would allow your word from Luke, the 15th chapter, to impact our lives. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. Pastor Sam Nesser was the senior pastor at Bayview Glen Church in Toronto, Canada. He was speaking in Persian one day to a small segment of his congregation, an Iranian segment. And in the middle of his sermon, he happened to look towards the back of the sanctuary and he noticed that a gal had her phone on and had it up. He thought, well, that's odd. Who would be talking on the phone in the midst of my sermon, Pastor Sam thought. But he realized that, you know, emergencies happen. Perhaps something big was going on in her life. There was probably a good reason that she was on the phone, didn't think anything of it. The next week he was preaching and he suddenly looked up and towards the back, the same woman had her phone up again. And he thought, oh, this is not good. I mean, one emergency is one emergency, but two in a row? I think that uh, she's not paying attention. So he thought to himself, maybe I'll just ask her privately what's going on. And he did that, and he mentioned the phone, and she said, oh, well, you know that uh, my home is in Tehran. That's where my husband is, but I have already moved here to Toronto. He's eventually going to move here. And you know that since I've been here, I've accepted Jesus Christ as Savior, but my husband's not there yet. Well, that was interesting, but that didn't explain why she had to talk on the phone at that moment. She went on. She said in the last month or two, my husband has started to take an interest in Jesus. And so for about six weeks, I would turn my phone on during your sermon, I would keep it low. Nobody could see it. But in the last few weeks, my mother and my sister, and in fact, a lot of my relatives and neighbors are all crowding into the same house in Tehran. They're all listening to your message, and I need to lift my phone up so that the reception is clear for all of them to hear. 
Well, that gave new meaning to Connect, Grow, Go. And uh, Pastor Nasser was excited about this. And he insisted that the next week she sit in the best seat in the house, that one, that front seat. We've reserved it in this hour. Uh, nobody's sitting there, but next week you can have it. And uh, he insisted that she sit there, and that way she could have clear reception. Well, the next week came, and he began to preach, and at the end of his message, he shared the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he asked if anyone was interested in placing their faith in Christ alone. His death as a payment for our sins and his resurrection as the first fruit of salvation. There was no response for a few moments. And suddenly the woman in the front row yelled, my husband, my husband, my husband has just believed in Jesus for salvation. Wait, wait, my mother. No, no, my sister as well. And three individuals in Tehran had just accepted Christ as personal savior. And you can imagine there was a great celebration in both Toronto and Tehran. But according to our passage today, the celebration was not just in Tehran and in Toronto. It was in all of heaven, verses 5, 7, and 10, because all of heaven erupted in joyful jubilation at the salvation of someone here on earth. And I hope that that is our perception of God that God is so excited about salvation that he, that all of heaven erupts in joyful jubilation when someone comes to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. I'd like to pick up and read this morning. We'll be in Luke 15. We're going to look at verses 1 to 10. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, that is Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, and they said, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons. We might read the word self-righteous, because on our own there are no righteous. 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having 10 silver coins... If she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that was lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. As you and I begin in verse 1, we see that Jesus is hanging with the wrong crowds. In verses 1 and 2, he's with tax collectors and sinners. Let's consider the tax collectors. Most of us are not very fond of the tax woman or man, but we don't blame that individual because 
She or he, they're just doing their job. We have politicians to blame for our taxes. But generally, we don't like paying taxes. We're not really fond of the tax person. But again, that's just their job. But consider the first century. Tax collectors in the first century in Israel were Jews who wore Roman uniforms. The uniform of the occupier the uniform of the oppressor. And taxes were rather exorbitant under Rome. And Rome allowed up charges. It allowed the tax collector to line his own pockets by overcharging his own people, giving a portion, the right portion to Rome, and keeping the rest for himself. And so tax collectors in the first century were thieves They were turncoats, they were traitors. They wore the uniform of the occupiers and they overcharged, they upcharged their own people. To say that tax collectors are disliked, disdained people would be an understatement. And Jesus is hanging with them. Not only is he hanging with tax collectors, he's hanging with sinners. Now, sinners are probably a group you and I would like. Sinners are the ones that annoy the scribes, the professional clergy, and the Pharisees, the lay spiritual leaders, who tend to be over the top, who tend to have lots of man-made rules and regulations, who tend to be separatists. Sinners we like because we are them. Jesus is with the tax collectors and the sinners. He gives new meaning to the word go as well. I picture him at the Chatterbox or the Red Eye Brewing Company with a bunch of friends talking, having a burger, sharing life, laughing, enjoying one another. And all the while, the text tells us that we have the scribes and the Pharisees and they're grumbling and the word grumbling is in the imperfect tense. The idea is they're grumbling and they continue to grumble. They're really annoyed by all that is going on. Now we might expect that because we have a number of rabbinical uh, documents from the first century or earlier. We actually have a midrash which is a commentary on Exodus chapter 18 which tells us that the rabbis would not hang with the riffraff. That's my word, but they wouldn't hang with sinners like you, like me. They wanted nothing to do with us. In fact, they would not teach us the law until we got our act together. How different is that from God who desires to teach us the law and desires that we would begin to uphold the law? Well, the rabbis said you got to uphold the law first and then we'll bother to teach it to you. Well, in response to how the scribes and the Pharisees are acting, Jesus begins to teach three parables, two of which we'll look at today. The first parable is of a shepherd. It's a wealthy shepherd, actually. This particular shepherd has 100 sheep. If you go to Bethlehem today and you see shepherds, you'll probably notice that they have 10, 15, very rarely 20 sheep. They don't have 100. Well, this guy has 100. He's doing better than respectable for himself. And one of them goes off. 
it's that sheep's fault. It's a 1% loss, but you would never, you'd think, leave 99 and go after the one. But this shepherd represents Jesus, and he's so concerned even for the one sheep, even for you, even for me. He leaves the 99 in an open spot, a, a safe spot, and he goes after the one. Now, we have to understand that sheep are not very self-sufficient. They don't do well on their own. When they wander off, they probably go over a precipice or they break a limb or they're lost until they starve to death or they become a meal for something else. Sheep are not toughened. And the Bible says in Isaiah 53, verse 6, that we, like sheep, have gone astray. We are the sheep. We are not self-sufficient. We are not self-reliant. God sustains us. God creates us. God redeems us. We are incapable of any of these on our own. So we are like sheep, and God is like the good shepherd. He is the good, kind shepherd who comes to the sheep, us, to redeem us. Now what you see on the overhead is a statue called the good shepherd. This particular statue is the earliest known statue of the Western Church. It predates probably A.D. 300, and it was found in the catacombs on the Appian Way outside of Rome. Now, as you probably know, the catacombs outside of Rome are where many Christians from the first three centuries are buried. If you have a chance to go to Rome, you'll want to go to the catacombs. Some of them are as deep like the South Callus catacombs. They're 65 feet under, and they're 12 miles long. These are long catacombs where body after body, saint after saint, has been buried. That is believer after believer. In addition, if you go down in the catacombs, you'll find small little openings, little rooms. Well, that's where the church met. You see, until the Edict of Milan in 312 under Constantine, the first Christian or at least uh, kind to Christian emperors, Christianity was outlawed in Rome. And so to have church, you would not gather in a building like this. You wouldn't even risk gathering in your own home. You'd go outside of Rome and you'd go down 65 feet under and you'd go into the catacombs and there you would have church. And there in the catacombs, we have the first Western statue. It's a statue called the Good Shepherd. It's a statue of Christ. And think about that. For a church under persecution, for a church that is being scattered, for a church that is utterly defenseless, what better picture than Jesus as the Good Shepherd? What a picture of grace to the early church and to the 21st church as well. Notice again that Jesus seeks us. It's the shepherd that goes after the sheep. In a moment we'll see it's the woman that goes after the drachma or the silver coin. Next week and the week after we'll see it's the father who runs to the son. It is Christ who seeks after us. Now this has all sorts of implications for the doctrine of election. But I'm not going there this morning. This morning, I just want you to bask in the reality and the truth 
and the joy that you matter so much to God that he seeks you, he seeks after you, that he loves you, that he longs for you, that he desires to protect you. And that being with absolutely no merit on our part. Now, there are dozens of passages in the Old and the New Testament that tell us to seek after God, but many more than that, God seeks after us, and Christ is the ultimate seeker. He seeks us, why? Because one of his divine attributes, a communicable, a transferable attribute of God, is he is a God of love, he's a God of mercy, he's a God of grace, but the, the attribute is love. God loves us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. God loves us. That's why we'll read in Luke 19.10 that the son of man comes to seek and save the lost. I love the way Ezekiel puts it. In Ezekiel 34 Verse 16, I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak. This is the shepherd God that you and I seek. But not only are we given the picture of a shepherd, we're also given the picture, verses eight and following, of a woman. And this woman has a silver coin it's a drachma, it's a tiny little coin, and she has lost it. Now, scholars are divided exactly what coin she's lost. We know it's a drachma, and a drachma is worth uh, the annual pay of one day for somebody who works all day long, let's say a day laborer. Maybe in the 20th century, that's $100, a Ben Franklin. But exactly what drachma she lost, scholars are divided. Lots of people believe it was part of a frontlet necklace. This is a necklace that, this is rather an extreme example of it, but a frontlet necklace up above, you can see the coins on it. In a typical first century Jewish frontlet necklace, there would be 10 drachmas just as we have 10 coins. These coins were part of her dowry, She's actually given 10 coins for 10 working days worth of wages because she got married and they're part of her future. In addition, this frontlet necklace has sentimental value. It was akin to an engagement ring or a wedding ring. In fact, we read that in the first century, some women who are respectable would not go out without the frontlet necklace advertising that she is taken, she is married, she is not single, not available. We actually have some extant literature that says that in the first century, there were laws that said if a man, a husband, owes creditors, the creditor could take almost anything, but he could not take the coins on the wife's frontlet necklace. And so we have unscrupulous men who continue to add coins to their wife's frontlet necklace to prevent creditors from taking the money. It might be, possibly, one of those coins that is lost. Now, we know from the text that she's lost it in the house. That's good news. 
the house is one room, not counting what would be on the roof, the room that you would uh, entertain in. It would be the size of about a one-room garage. Now, we've seen the little children's pictures where they're coloring the first century homes, and they have a door, and then they have a window. There's no window. There's no window in a first century Jewish home. That's why in verse 8, she lights the lamp. Now, you say to yourself, it's not going to be all that hard to find this particular coin. She's got the roof, and she's got a one-room place, it will be pretty easy. But understand that a, a drachma, a silver drachma, is a small coin. The ground is not covered with carpet or linoleum. It's packed dirt. And over the dirt, you would have flagstone. And then over the flagstone, you would have straw, so it's easy on your feet. So she's going to have to gather all the straw and go through the straw looking for the tiny coin. And then she's going to have to look through the crevices of the flagstone and make sure it's not buried somewhere in the dirt. That's what she's going to have to do. But she will go after this particular coin because it has monetary value. It's one-tenth of her dowry. And it has sentimental value. It's akin to her wedding ring or her engagement ring. And when she finds it, notice in verse 9, she invites her friends. It's girls' night out. I know that because the words used by Luke are feminine, so the individuals she invites to celebrate are all females. They have a celebration because what was lost has now been found. So what are we to do with the text? Let me offer two thoughts. First, these two parables along with the prodigal son, which we're actually going to spend two weeks on, are all about what is lost being found and what is found being celebrated. Is that our view of God? God is all about celebrating lost souls who are sought out and who receive protection. Now think about the parables. The first one is about a sheep. What does the sheep do in order to be rescued? Nothing. In fact, we might say, you know what? The sheep is getting its just desserts. It's only one of 100, 1%. It wandered off. Let it lie in its own bed. It made its own bed. Forget it. And yet the shepherd leaves the 99 to go after the one. What about the coin? What does the coin do? In order to be found, nothing. It's an inanimate object. And yet the woman who represents Christ searches and searches until the coin is found. Next week we'll read about a young man who is self-centered and self-reliant and arrogant and takes a third of the family estate and goes off to Sin City and sells it all and uses it all and spends it all and comes back as a pauper. And what happens? The father is out searching and he runs to the son and he embraces the son and, and he brings the son in. Initiative is taken by the shepherd. Initiative is taken by the woman. Initiative is taken by the father. If you ever doubt God's love for you, think about the initiative taken by God on your behalf and on behalf of of humanity. Initiative 
is taken by the Father. We should never doubt the incredible love of a God who would create us, sustain us, and offer redemption to us through the shed blood, the atoning blood of his Son, and who seeks to save the lost. As I thought about this, I thought about a count that comes from another religion. I'm sure it's based on the prodigal son. And the account goes like this. There was a young man. He asked his dad for his inheritance now. And his dad gave it to him and off he went. And he was gone for many, many, many years. He spent all that he had and then he became very sick. His sickness somehow caused him to lose some of his memory. Some friends realizing he was really destitute, they brought him back to his father and to his home. He didn't recognize his father. He didn't recognize his home. He had lost some of those memories. His father, for his part, wanted nothing to do with the son. He told the servants, don't ever tell this man that he belongs to me. Treat him as a slave. And the son was a slave for many years. And over those years, the, the son who was a slave became ethical and became moral. He became kind. And only after he became ethical and moral and kind did his father go to him, reintroduce himself, and say, now you are again an heir. And I want us to contrast that account with what the Bible says. Which would we prefer? When we get our life together, when we get our act together, when we stop being riffraffed, when we stop being sinners, when we get it all together, then we can be heirs? Or the gospel, which says that by faith in what Christ has done, not by any merit on our part, only by grace, which is undeserved, do we come as beggars? Do we come as a lost sheep? Do we come as an inanimate drachma, incapable of finding itself? And we embrace what Christ has done for us. Which would we prefer? What Scripture says is true about the gospel or another religion that is played off of Luke 15. Second, you and I can never forget that Jesus hung around sinners, verses 1 and 2. Jesus was not like the 99 who were self-righteous. He was righteous. We can't be like Jesus on our own. We can be covered with his righteousness. But we can be like the 99 who are self-righteous. We can be like the 99. We can be like the scribes. We can be like the Pharisees and have nothing to do with those kind of people, which are really our kind of people, because they are us. I don't want to ever forget that Jesus hung around sinners. He went to where the sinners were. He loved the sinners and pointed them to himself. That's what we're called to do, not ever to be like these 99 self-righteous ones. In addition, after we have been redeemed through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, we're to daily come 
and confess and repent. I love what John writes in 1 John 1, 8 to 10. He says, if we say that we have no sin, we are liars and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. If we say we have no sin, we make Christ out to be a liar and his word is not in us. And so even after redemption, even after cleansing, we daily, and that's the right word, we daily come to the Lord to confess and repent because we are needy, very needy sinners. Finally, I told you I had two points. I actually lied. I have three. Uh, But sometimes we focus on only one or two attributes of God. So last week, We talked about actually some of the judgment and wrath of God. This week we talk about the love of God. All of these attributes are true about God. The wrath will be poured out on the unbelieving world if they do not confess and repent. But for we who believe in Christ, we have Romans 8.1, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so we could then say, well, if there's no condemnation, I can live as I want. Well, Paul addressed that. He said, shall I go on sinning that grace may abound? By no means. We don't presume upon the grace of God. And so we confess and we repent and we ask God to empower us to turn from sin and towards righteousness. But last week we talked about wrath and this week we talk about love. And this week we go home basking in love of Christ. Don't ever doubt his incredible love for you and for me. And may that cause us to be filled with joy and to be filled with worship. Let's pray. Father God, if there are some here today that need to respond to the question of Pastor Sam Nasser, that need to believe in Jesus Christ for salvation. I pray that by faith they would acknowledge what we all need to. We are sinners incapable of saving ourselves. And by faith they would believe in the good shepherd, your son, and his death as the payment of our sin and his resurrection as the first fruits of salvation. And they would enjoy salvation through Christ alone. And for we who know Christ, may we never become self-righteous and arrogant like the scribes and Pharisees in today's text. May we daily recognize our need for confession and repentance and our joy to go and share salvation with other riffraff like us who need to know Christ. Father, use us for your glory and your betterment, and our, or excuse me, in our betterment, we ask. In the name of Christ, amen. Amen.